uh, left and Mary Lessow to your right, uh, identified a project uh, that they felt they would like to work on as an independent study project for credit, like a regular credit course, a project they'd like to work on this year. And through their coordinator, Mr. Fournier, uh, they were allowed to do this. Uh, Mr. Fowler uh, was uh, asked to help as a consultant in the program. Mr. Fowler asked me if I would assist. It's been a great pleasure for both of us to uh, work with these young people. Uh, we are so sorry Mr. Fowler cannot be here this evening to hear them. Uh, we are trying to make a tape recording. So these young men have been studying about our famous Stratford son, William Samuel Johnson, and his family. Uh, they will present a, a summary of their uh, research uh, as, part of the, as, the pro, as they're part of the program this evening. Uh, I hope they will tell you that they have prepared, I think it's a 30 plus page uh, summary of a uh, presentation in writing of this report, which will be available in the town library, the school libraries, and the historical society. I think they will present, demonstrate that to you tonight, and I think they're going to send you home with a souvenir of this program also. I'll let them tell you about this. With great pleasure, I present the first speaker, David Lastomirsky. gentlemen, all of us here tonight have something in common, an interest in the heritage of Stratford. After spending more than a year in the research and writing of our report, my colleague and I feel that no better example of a part of this heritage exists than the life story of William Samuel Johnson. This man was born and raised in Stratford, but the events of his life took him away from his hometown and gave him a career that few could match in public service to both the nation and the state. If what we have to say tonight seems to appear like all praise, little criticism, well, we have found that the story of this man lends itself that way. Yet, as you shall see, everything about Johnson does not add up to one long success story. There was a difficult period in his life when one could say that the love he professed for the nation he helped found was less than true and sincere. Our job in compiling this report and presenting what we have learned to you tonight didn't involve judging whether the decisions he made were right or wrong. But the fact that this man stood his ground once his mind was made up did impress us. No matter what the consequences to him might have been, Johnson was above all a man of principle, a man who lived his life according to the beliefs he felt most deeply about. Because of this courage, we feel any praise seems to justify itself. The highest tribute we can say tonight about William Samuel Johnson is that he has our total respect for him, something that will remain long after our work is completed. But then we believe, and hope you come to also, that this individual has earned it all. The day October 7, 1727, saw the birth of William Samuel Johnson who respected and influential family of Stratford. His father was the Reverend Samuel William Johnson, then the first director of Christ Episcopal Church here in town, and one day to be the first president of King's College in New York City, now evolved to be Columbia University. The Reverend Johnson was sent from his native England to be a permanent minister of the Episcopalian faith in Stratford, and he was here less than four years when his son was born. William Samuel's mother came from a wealthy family and brought her husband into acquaintance with many influential people on both sides of the Atlantic. The former Charity Floyd was the daughter of Colonel Richard Floyd of Long Island and was also the widow of Benjamin Nicole, bringing William Samuel two stepbrothers and a stepsister from her first marriage. No material is available on the early childhood of Johnson, but we can assume that he participated and all the games the youngsters of that day played, with their playground being what was then called the Stratford Green, today known as Academy Hill. 
Education for young Johnson began early and remained rigorous throughout his youth, being provided by the town school. But when he reached his teens, the Reverend Johnson himself undertook the responsibility of educating William Samuel and his brothers, as he knew that no schools existed in the area at that time to provide the thorough religious and academic training he desired for them. He believed his sons should be able to analyze the situation and reach a decision carefully and with much thought. But once reached, have the courage to defend themselves against all those who disagree. As far as William Samuel is concerned, the Reverend's philosophy of education couldn't have produced a better example. The academic training was in preparation for William Samuel's attending college. Yet his father didn't believe that any of the colleges in colonial America were equal to the fine universities he knew of back in Europe. Nevertheless, his son did attend one of these colleges, which was not too far from Stratford's, and William Samuel graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1744 at the age of 17. The name of that college is Yale. The early age of attending college was not uncommon in those days. No formal system of grade levels existed in schools at that time, and the brightest students were able to master the curricula and advance to the point where a college was, was the next step in their education. Those who had private tutors were usually well prepared by their mid-teens also. Johnson remained in Yale, though, for another year, studying the Greek and Latin classics under a special scholarship. Returning home, he resumed his studies of language and literature, including that of Hebrew, under the tutelage of his father. But thoughts about a career were now entering his mind. Undecided among the choices of one in the ministry, one in the military, or one in law, he decided to try out being a religious teacher and lay reader for the, for the society for the propagation of the gospel. Until 1747, he was a religious teacher to some 150 children, and he helped care for the spiritual needs of more than 50 families in the section of land bordering Stratford known as Ripton, now called Shelton, Connecticut. Being a missionary in Shelton may seem like a strange occupation, but there are not enough men trained in the ministry for every village in town. And so young men who were college educated and had a strong religious background like Johnson's were greatly needed to bring the word of God to the people. This religious background influenced him throughout his life, but also influenced his dealings with people, from representing the colony in Great Britain to helping write a constitution for a new nation. Johnson decided to leave his missionary work in 1747 because he still wasn't sure about what career to enter. Although he enjoyed his two years being the spiritual advisor for people who needed his advice and gathered his instruction, he knew the ministry was something he didn't want to spend his entire life in. Johnson, therefore, both entered and graduated from Harvard College that year, receiving the Master of Arts degree. The reason for his short attendance at Harvard was that the course of study at the graduate level was not as lengthy as it is now, and he also had a year of postgraduate study completed at Yale. When Johnson returned home, he announced his decision for a career, he would become a lawyer. The news disappointed his father somewhat, for he had encouraged his son to become a minister, and from William Samuel's strongly religious upbringing and using work as a religious teacher, the Reverend thought his son was influenced enough to follow his father's footsteps. But the elder Johnson accepted the decision, knowing that his son had arrived at it after much careful thought and deliberation, and he also knew his son wouldn't change his mind. There was no formal legal training at that time, no course of study that could be pursued at a college. Legal education was very much a self-study type of education, although one's previous college background did help a great deal, and that one was exposed to scholarly works on a variety of subjects to help acquire the ability to think and write clearly and effectively. Johnson would attend the local court trials and carefully observe what was taking place, in addition to reading every book he could find on law, including one his father gave him the money to buy. This education may appear inadequate by today's standards, but it trained Johnson sufficiently enough so that upon entering the practice of law, he soon became a much in this case, acting as an agent for the purchase of land. They might argue that such authority should have been delegated to a special commission or to a committee of the General Assembly itself. The hostile feeling some members of Parliament felt toward the troublesome colonies, the General Assembly was afraid this dust might happen. 
So this is where Johnson comes in, acting as the defendant colony's attorney. His eloquence and handling of the case impressed many Britishers who believed colonial lawyers were uneducated and incompetent. But the case still dragged on because of numerous delays. From its arrival in the winter of 1767 until its departure in the summer of 1771, Johnson wasn't able to return home even once. During his stay, though, he had the opportunity to do some traveling in England, including to the town where his ancestors had lived, and throughout the rest of Europe also. A steady flow of correspondence also came from Johnson, and he wrote home valuable information concerning the British political scene and what actions toward the colonies were being debated on by Parliament. One direct result of this was Connecticut's repealing a special import tax they had enacted against products being imported by foreign-born merchants. Johnson was able to forewarn Connecticut before any serious retaliatory action was taken by Great Britain. During this period of his life, Johnson developed a deep respect for the British political and legal system, along with the people he saw running it. He firmly believed that both the colonies and England's interests would both be served if only a peaceful compromise could be arrived at concerning the many issues slowly separating the mother country from America. Above all, he dreaded the thought that war might break out between the two, and America would lose access to the economic and cultural resources Great Britain could provide if only hatred would dissolve into friendship. These feelings wouldn't change when he came home to a turbulent pre-war America, and so they would cause him some of the saddest days of his life. Upon returning to Stratford, Johnson was awarded a Superior Court judgeship by the General Assembly. The long years and frustrating delays were not in vain. Johnson had won the case for Connecticut, and the charter was once again safe, at least for now. Johnson, though, resigned the position after several months, <coughs> deciding to re-enter the private practice of law. The war years were now started, and Johnson's involvement, or lack of involvement, would cause him many professional and personal difficulties. First, he refused to serve as one of three delegates from Connecticut to the First Continental Congress held in Philadelphia in 1774, claiming he had previous engagements as a lawyer to handle. But actually, he didn't want to get involved in something which very well could lead to war. Johnson did, though, finally agree to pursue a type of peace mission for the colony, in which he and another man would deliver a letter to General Thomas Gage in Boston, which asked if the differences between the mother country and the colonies couldn't be resolved and war averted. The mission was in vain, although General Gage said he, helped, he hoped peace could be returned, and he said he would work toward that goal. When Johnson returned to the General Assembly, they were in the process of preparing for war. Peace was no longer on their minds. Because of his deep feelings against the war, Johnson decided to remain neutral throughout the conflict, and he went into a self-imposed retirement in Stratford. Many would say that this man was unpatriotic and his refusal to actively support the revolution, but this was not really the case. Johnson loved his native land very much, but remained convinced that a war was not the answer to America's difficulties with England. One incident during these years was when Johnson was arrested on the charge that he had communicated with the enemy to try and prevent Stratford from being attacked as Fairfield and Norwalk had been. Although Johnson's neighbors were circulating petitions to persuade him to meet with the British general, Thomas Tryon, whom they knew was an old acquaintance of his from years before, Johnson refused to get involved. Nevertheless, some Connecticut military leaders misinterpreted the story and believed Johnson was now collaborating with the enemy. He was arrested and brought before the Council of Safety at Lebanon, Connecticut, which had military authority in the state. Johnson's story was believed, and he was released after voluntarily taking an oath of allegiance to Connecticut. Those war years passed with Johnson remaining in Stratford, continuing his retirement. As the war grew to an end, he resumed his legal practice. Much of the animosity held toward him had now subsided after America was seen to have won the war. Winning seems to cause the victors to forget what they put others through to gain their victory. But Johnson didn't harbor any bitterness toward these people now, something we can attest to the strength of his character and his religious belief to forgive those who have wronged you. Johnson was again called to serve the now state of Connecticut in another land dispute again involving the validity of the new state constitution, which was the old colonial charter of 
some minor changes made. The old charter was a sea-to-sea one. This means that Connecticut had claims to land which stretched far to the west of the actual present state boundaries. No precise western boundary was erected when the earliest settlers came. The dispute was over the sale of land in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania by a Connecticut-based outfit known as the Susquehanna Company. Pennsylvania claimed that Connecticut had no legal claim to that land, and so the case was heard before a board of arbitration at Trenton, New Jersey, as the Confederation Congress wasn't sure it had the authority to decide the dispute itself. The arbitration board unanimously agreed that Pennsylvania now had all legal rights to the land. Disappointed by the outcome, Johnson remarked that if there had been better judges appointed to the arbitration board, he would have won. This case did not get closed, though. Johnson was elected by the General Assembly to the National Congress, which met in New York City, and he served the there from January 1784 until May 1787. One of the things he accomplished there was an agreement whereby Connecticut would give the land it still claimed under the C2C Charter, this time in Ohio, though, to the federal government, but be able to retain a tract of this land about equal to that lost in the Trenton decision. Connecticut subsequently sold this land for a profit of $1,200,000, which became the state's first school fund. However, all the Pennsylvania delegates in the Congress agreed that Connecticut could keep that tract of land to be later sold, something which appears unusual considering Pennsylvania's opposition to Connecticut keeping any of its land. Historians believe that an agreement was arranged at Trenton whereby Connecticut would be compensated for the land it lost. Johnson didn't exactly walk away empty-handed. I have talked now about many of the events in Johnson's life and tried to help you know and understand this man, the why behind the what. But the most interesting part of this man's life is still to come. And to tell you about it, after we show you some slides pertaining to William Samuel Johnson, uh, is my colleague Barry Lesso. But first, we do have some slides that we think uh, you'd like to see. This is the sign placed in front of the 
the house you probably have seen as you go down Main Street was placed there by a tenant of the historical society. This is the Johnson Piano. It is now in the Justin House, and uh, it was has been reconditioned and is quite an excellent piece of furniture. This is a map of Stratford as it is today, and Barry will show you about where Johnson's house is in Stratford. Johnson's house is right about here where the Connecticut Turnpike meets Main Street along West Broad Street, and Johnson owned quite a bit of property along what's now King's College Street and all in the Connecticut Turnpike area where the interchange is now. Okay, those are the slides. There are not many, but we think they, uh, they do pertain to Johnson and we hope you've enjoyed it. We'd like to thank Jim Bagley for running the slide machine for us, and he has aided in the technical work on our report. It's too late for us to put in the report and our acknowledgments, but he has done a good job for us. And now I'll continue where David left off with William Samuel Johnson's 81787. Perhaps the greatest event yet to happen in William Samuel Johnson's life took place during the hot summer in Philadelphia in the year 1787. Johnson was appointed head of the Connecticut delegation to the Constitutional Convention. One of his colleagues was Oliver Ellsworth, a native of Windsor, Connecticut. Ellsworth, after graduating from Princeton in 1766, began the practice of law in Hartford. Ellsworth would be one of the first two United States Senators from Connecticut, the other being Johnson. He was appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1796 by George Washington, who subsequently appointed him Minister to France in 1801. Upon his return, he was elected to the Governor's Council in Connecticut and later appointed Chief Justice of Connecticut's Superior Court. The other delegate was Roger Sherman, who was born in Massachusetts in 1721 and was trained as a shoemaker later moving to New Milford, Connecticut, beginning his law practice in 1753. Sherman has an unusual distinction, being the only person to have signed the Association of 1774, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution he was now helping to form. These three men were not named until May 10th and announced in Philadelphia on the 17th, relatively later than most of the other states, but Connecticut wanted to be sure that only the right men for such an important task were chosen. The convention formally opened on May 25, 1787, after nine states had sent a total of 29 delegates to Philadelphia. William Samuel Johnson was present every day the convention assembled. However, he did not make his first speech to the convention until June 21st, in which he contrasted the Virginia plan to the New Jersey plan. The Virginia plan called for a unicameral legislature with membership determined by the voting population of the state, a plan which obviously favored the larger, more populous states. The New Jersey plan also involved a unicameral legislature, but with equal representation for all states, regardless of size. Johnson made a second speech on June 29th in which he suggested a bicameral system, one house representing the states and the other house representing the people in it. Perhaps the most significant contribution by the Connecticut delegates came in what was known as the Connecticut Proposal. Oliver Ellsworth proposed that each state have two members in the Senate, equal representation for all. This idea, as before, met a flurry of opposition, chiefly from a native of Connecticut who was now a representative from Georgia, Abraham Baldwin. He wanted the Senate to be a body representing the wealthier people in the state, not the poorer people who would gain representation under Ellsworth's proposal. Nevertheless, the Connecticut proposal was brought to the convention every day by Sherman, Ellsworth, and Johnson. The debate over the proposal nearly caused the convention to come to a halt until Benjamin Franklin suggested that the question be referred to a committee for final settlement. On July 2nd, the committee was selected, and its membership included Oliver Ellsworth, the proposal's originator, and his opponent, Baldwin, along with Harriet Ingersoll, Johnson's old friend and correspondent, who was a delegate from Pennsylvania. July 5th brought the decision. The Connecticut proposal would be accepted amidst the still heated arguments against it. Johnson took an active role in other matters before the assembly that he had strong beliefs in, including the following. 
Judicial power ought to extend to equity as well as to law, that no one could be held in treason against his individual state and the nation, only the nation since the state was a legal member of the nation, and his proposition regarding the prohibition of ex post facto laws, which would create an unhealthy suspicion of the new Congress in its lawmaking role. Johnson was also a member of the Committee of Eleven, formed to settle the slave problem. Their decision was that imported slaves could be taxed, but Congress could not make any changes in the present slave trade until 1800. This decision would prove to be very important in the years to come. As chairman of the prestigious Committee on Style and Arrangement, Johnson was able to help in the final revision of the Constitution, along with committee members James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Rufus King, and Governor Morris. The convention needed a man who was a conservative and a moderate to lead the revision, to ensure that the salient points already agreed on would not be changed to any great extent by an overambitious committee. Tempered by long years of public service and possessing a wisdom of people as well as law, William Samuel Johnson was just the man they needed. Many of the changes in wording and style on the original copy the committee worked with were written in his own handwriting. September 17, 1787 was the day that the final copy of the Constitution of the United States was signed, with Johnson and Sherman lending their signatures, but with Ellsworth, unfortunately, having to depart before the signing. No other person the day of the signing was more qualified by wisdom or experience than Johnson, and Connecticut, especially Stratford, can be proud that a resident played such an important role in the early years of our nation. Once the new Constitution was completed at Philadelphia, the states themselves entered the action by deciding whether or not they would accept these new national rules and regulations. Connecticut was the first New England state to give its nod of approval. Johnson and Ellsworth sent Governor Samuel Huntington a copy of the Constitution in 1787, and he became an enthusiastic supporter for its ratification. The General Assembly called for, in October, a state convention to determine the question of ratification, and Johnson was chosen one of the delegates to represent Stratford. The people in Stratford were somewhat divided over the question of accepting the new Constitution, wondering if the United States was not entrapping itself in what might turn out to be an impractical and inefficient, if not tyrannical, code of government. The convention met at the North Meeting House in Hartford. Its decision came on January 9, 1788, and with 128 to 40, the vote was decidedly affirmative. The state of Connecticut gave a fitting end to a process in which one of its native sons was so deeply involved. When the new Congress was being formed, Johnson and his colleague, Oliver Ellsworth, were elected by the General Assembly to be Connecticut's first two United States Senators in 1788. Meeting in New York, the Congress began to formulate many of the new laws this country needed. Johnson participated in the forming of a patent act and copyright law, and although not a member of the original drafting committee, he helped to formulate the Judiciary Act of 1789. However, Johnson's tenure in the Senate was less than three years duration because the Congress moved from New York to Philadelphia in 1791. This leads to an important area of Johnson's life, one which we have not yet covered. Just as the late Reverend Samuel William Johnson, William Samuel's father, was appointed first president of the then newly formed King's College of New York, which he helped found, William Samuel was called to be the first president of what eventually came to be King's successor, Columbia College, now known to all as the highly respected Ivy League school called Columbia University. Johnson gave this educational institution what few other men could have given, a knowledge of people, places, and events, garnered over a long, distinguished career in service to his state and country, along with legal, administrative, and scholastic ability, which helped set the college on a sound path academically, helping to establish the high reputation Columbia holds today. When the Congress moved out of the city, Johnson knew he could not leave Columbia, as his guidance and wisdom were still very much needed. A proud day for Johnson must certainly have been the first commencement day of his new college in the year 1789. Johnson made a speech to a distinguished group attending the ceremonies, which included President George Washington, Vice President John Adams, and the entire membership of both houses of Congress, along with the young and eager graduating students. Two important events occurred during this time period which are of significance to Johnson's life. First, an excellent portrait of Johnson was painted by the noted artist Gilbert Stewart, the first work done by him after returning to the United States from Europe in 1793. 
The second event is a sad one, as his wife, Ann Beach Johnson, died on April 24, 1796, after an illness of several months. Johnson accompanied his wife's body to Stratford, where she was buried in the Johnson family plot, in the cemetery behind the Christ Episcopal Church on Main Street. For eight years, Johnson continued his duty as president of Columbia College, including instruction in such areas as logic, the classics, and literature, until Ill's health struck him in 1799. The following year, he decided that the college was on secure enough ground academically for him to retire. Johnson, as a vestryman of the Trinity Church in New York, was called to pay a special meeting in December 1799 to discuss ways of paying a final tribute to George Washington, who had just passed away. The night of the meeting was a particularly stormy, blustery one, and as a result, Johnson became ill. So ill, in fact, that he returned to Stratford to be with his families for what he thought might be his final days. Fortunately, he recovered, but decided to retire from his position at Columbia and so resigned on July 2nd, 1800. The final years of William Samuel Johnson's life were spent in quiet retirement at his home in Stratford, where he reflected much on the many past experiences of his vigorous life and received a great number of visitors who asked his valued judgment on events of the present day and also of those he had witnessed in the past. Johnson's retirement also included his marrying again at the age of 73 to Mary Beach of Kent, Connecticut, a distant relation to his first wife. After many years of quiet retirement in his Stratford home, William Samuel Johnson passed away on November 14, 1819. He was laid to rest in the family burial plot behind the Christ Episcopal Church next to his first wife and his father. Part of Stratford, Connecticut's, and America's history was also laid to final rest that day. We have seen a man who has lived through several periods of American history. His youth during the colonial days of Stratford, his service to Connecticut, and his self-imposed retirement during the difficult Revolutionary War period, to our, to our nation during the early years of the new country's formation, and living to see America begin a growth which would someday lead to world leadership, and his deep respect for the nation he helped organize and govern. And to each one, he contributed his own unique qualities and abilities, leaving a mark on our heritage at three levels local, state, and national. William Samuel Johnson was a man who held on to principles as few others could, principles carefully thought through and lodged in his soul that would not give in, regardless of the cost to him in his career and reputation. The long and distinguished career of this man from Stratford is set on record for all to see and hopefully come away with the respect and admiration for such an individual as David and I have gained. The highest tribute we can pay to this gentleman is to say that it has been an honor and a privilege to have learned about him, and we can now fully appreciate all he has given us as citizens of a town, a state, and a nation. Thank you. It's a pleasure for the choir and myself to be here this evening. We are going to sing a medley of several tunes from the American Revolution. These tunes are entitled Freedom Song, 1776. The first tune, some of you might recognize, it's Hail Columbia, Happy Land. The second tune is On Far Away Hill. Sometimes the text, the words, is On Butter Hill. Here I sit on Butternut Hill. The third song is the Liberty Song. And the next song, we join the colonists in church. And this is something where the text is from the Psalms. Confess Jehovah. And the next to last tune is My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free. A tune by one of our first American composers. And for the finale, this tune will need no introduction. It's the familiar Yankee Doodle. So if you want to join in with us, why, you go ahead. <laughs> America was still a young country. It is 1789 and George Washington is about to become the first president of the United States. 
1774, representatives from the colonies met to organize an army and appointed Washington commander-in-chief. On July 4, 1776, they adopted the Declaration of Independence, but it took more than six years of fighting before independence was won. On the occasion of Washington's inauguration, a tune known as the President's March is said to have first played as he crossed Delaware for the ceremonies. Later, words were added to the tune by Joseph Hopkinson. The new song attained instant popularity and has ever since been sung under the title Hail Columbia, one of the nation's first patriotic songs. Exposed to chilling winds, sickness, and starvation, it was a time of sadness and great loneliness for the women, left waiting, always waiting.
Patriotic songs throughout history have ignited the enthusiasm of those fighting for a common cause. So it was in 1768 when the first American patriotic ballad was written by John Dickinson, Delaware lawyer. The Liberty Songs began the battle between patriots and Tories, even before the first shot of the revolution had been fired. unfair taxation. robust vigor, and some with sparkling rhythms and possessed of the gracefulness found in the sophisticated madrigal. The music of William Billings was a great favorite. Billings, a tanner by trade and musician of note. His first collection, The New England Sound Singer, was engraved by Paul Revere five years before that patriot made his famous Midnight Ride. Chester and Lamentations over Boston fed the patriotic fervor of his countrymen as his choral compositions were performed more frequently than those of any other native composer for more than a generation.
1788, Francis Hopkinson, a signer of the Declaration, judge of the Amity of Pennsylvania, poet, writer, painter, and a man of society, sent a letter to his friend George Washington. Enclosed was a song he had composed, My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free. The composer hoped that Washington would attest to the quality of the music and also confirm the fact that Hopkinson was the first native of the United States to have produced a musical composition. Washington shrewdly sidestepped both issues, saying, I can either sing one of the songs or raise a single note on any instrument to, conceive, to convince anybody. But I have one argument which will prevail with persons of true taste. I can tell them it is a production of Mr. Hopkinson. To this day, it is not certain that this is the first song to have been composed by a Native American, but in all probability it has this distinction. song of early America is better known today than the brisk, carefree tune, Yankee Doodle. First sung by the English to make fun of the Yankees, the men and men adopted it as their own. It was sung by the Yankees when they had won victory as Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. The gay, lighthearted tune expresses the indomitable spirit of the young America landed free and proud home of those early patriots who contributed so much to the beginnings of this great country. George Washington, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, Paul Revere, John Adams, and many more. Thank you. 